Welcome back to Sundial on WLRN. I'm Carlos Frias. Have you got your Cuban coffee yet? Good. Let's talk ventanitas. These little windows tucked into the sides of restaurants around South Florida. It's where we meet to drink Cuban coffee and swap stories. It's where politicians stump and give speeches, where we drop in between lunch and dinner for a croqueta or a pastelito. It might seem common now, but the idea of a walk-up coffee window was revolutionary in 1960 when Felipe Val Sr., the father of the Ventanita, landed in Miami as a Cuban exile. He was still a decade away from founding maybe the most famous Cuban restaurant in the world, Versailles, not to mention 30 other restaurants like La Carreta and La Palma. Valls died November 26 at the age of 89, but not before influencing Miami's coffee culture forever. He arrived at just 27 years old, a young wife, two kids, a third on the way. He started by selling and repairing kitchen appliances in bodegas and restaurants, and he noticed something. There was virtually no coffee culture in Miami then. You could hardly find a commercial Italian espresso maker anywhere in the city. Can you imagine Miami without a colada? Cuban coffee culture was on its way here, and it was coming in strong. Felipe Valls saw an opportunity, and the results made him a legend. I sat down with his son, Felipe Jr., the week that his father was buried. He went to his, we went to his father's offices across the street from Versailles on Calle Ocho. He started by taking us back in time. First of all, Miami was a very small, sleepy town. It was nothing even close to, to anything that it is today. Miami Beach had some movement, obviously, the hotels, and then there was established neighborhoods like the Gables, the Grove a little bit, very little beyond 12th or 17th Avenue West. So it was a very kind of, not a great place to come for great entrepreneurs and great businesses and engineers, doctors, bankers, and, and working people and middle class to come and just kind of melt into the, the workforce because there wasn't that much business and commerce. So that was already a challenge to start. And then obviously there was the language and the lack of any amount of money because everybody came like we did. We came, we flew over, but when we got here, other than the help that the government did give to Cuban refugees as far as uh, kind of food stamps for food and, and those kind of things, was a little bit of help of that. but. Other than that, there wasn't much. So I could just imagine, I was very small in the early years, obviously I came when I was two years old, but I can imagine that it was quite a, a shock to be all of a sudden kind of penniless and, and, and looking for work of whatever type. In his case, he started um, just doing whatever, any odd jobs. In fact, he started working on the beach in a hotel, I think washing pots and pans and, uh, Which guy, was very, very common for, for Cubans of that area. It didn't matter what you did in Cuba. That, that didn't translate right away. It was what jobs could you get? My dad was making plaster lamps in a Hialeah factory. So getting his hands, coming home with that ultra-dry plaster, right, kind of right. drying out his skin, he, that was his first job here. Right, you had to take whatever you needed to be able to come up with a little money, to get an apartment, somewhere to live. We lived basically three families in one uh, rented house. I was told I slept in a big drawer when I was a little kid till I was like three for a year. Wow. <laughs> because there was no room, so they would open the drawer and then put me in this like basket drawer. That's amazing. And so like that was, that's such an experience too for, for uh, folks coming from another country where everybody kind of 
gathers around, like gathers strength. Like if we have, if we know this person and they speak our language and we're near each other and we can split the cost of this house, this is a good way where we can get a foothold. What kind of jobs was your dad doing when he got here? So first jobs in. What- so he started out, he left quickly because the guy who got him the job in the hotel said he had to give him a cut of his pay because he got him the job. And it really ticked him off, you know, especially being the way he is, has helped so many people. And he just kind of left it and then started working with a, a very uh, nice guy, a Jewish fellow in South Miami Avenue that had a restaurant equipment, used restaurant equipment company. And he just got him as a salesman. He, you know, he was a kind of a hustler, so he got him and he started uh, you know, working for him and selling equipment to different restaurants and hotels and things like that. And your dad knew restaurant equipment because that's part of what they did in Cuba. He had a big, like a company that made commercial refrigerators, among other things, right? Yeah, at that time, uh, among a few things that he had, he came very young. He was 27 when he came over. He also did some installations and, and built their own coolers with wood and insulation and then the compressors and, and that stuff. It wasn't really his strength nor was restaurants or restaurant equipment, but you know, it was, a, it was a sales position that made sense for him because he knew kind of the operator side a little bit of it and, and installations and, and then eventually convinced the, the, his boss to advance a month's pay so he could import a few espresso machines because the guy himself didn't want to bring him in because he said he had never sold any espresso machines here in Miami. And he told me, you're going to sell them now because, you know, it's part of our culture, the coffee and this and that. So your dad already had the foresight and was already must have been hearing like we want espresso, we want Cuban coffee. So he already had the foresight to say this is a thing that these hundreds of thousands of Cubans that are arriving are going to want and you don't have enough of. Yeah, yeah, we, there was really none. So he, he, he lent him the money and he brought two, I think, two or three from Italy or Spain or both. I don't, I don't remember exactly. And, uh, and, and if brought, I remember and, correctly, like maybe the guy that lent him the money was a guy that he had to pay back quickly, like maybe uh, not loan shark, maybe not being the right word. No, but. There, there was another guy that lent him money and something that was a bit of a loan shark. No, this guy, <laughs> this guy, this guy was a gentleman and he he, he uh, appreciated him much. Okay. And I'm and I'm sorry I don't remember his name, but uh, he's called me before because I've done interviews and I've mentioned him. And he said, I'm the son of the nice Jewish fellow that <laughs> they gave your dad work. But anyway, it worked out. He installed the first uh, coffee machines. And then eventually, as you know, in, in, in a supermarket, he had the idea of, you know, knock this picture window out and put a guillotine, you know, single hung door right to the, to the window, to the counter. So you could sell cups of coffee to people walking on the street on Flagler because it was very busy pedestrian wise on that street and it was it was a home run the guy it worked really well for the guy and then he started saying well then if it works here we can do it here and there well you're talking about the famous ventanitas right Correct. which right now if you were to say oh there's it's a, a coffee window that you open up and you sell coffee to it doesn't sound novel but you have to kind of go back in time and i love this story i'm going to just say it a little bit here because you have to go back in time to the early 60s air conditioning as we know it like the window unit had only been invented like 10 years ago. Buildings weren't designed for with air conditioning in mind. So you had a place like this supermarket, El Oso Blanco, which doesn't exist anymore, that decides that they're going to enclose to take advantage of oh, fresh air conditioning. Could you imagine Miami without air conditioning? 
Miami, in summer. Miami and Cuba, the same thing. The same thing. The, the coffee windows in Cuba were like that. They were inside, as you know, and uh, they were part of the store right. that was open the majority of the time to the air because there was no air conditioning. Was Even no though air conditioning was invented and Cuba was advanced in air conditioning. In fact, Cuba had the first hotel with central air conditioning in the world. No, I was in Cuba. That. I think it was the Riviera. So it was there, obviously. Cuba was very advanced in all those things, very close to America. So they, they, they took the advantage of those modern things. But in general, there was no air conditioning. Here, when he started doing that, the market was going to have air conditioning. That's why they closed kind of that counter facing the street to have it with an air conditioner, which is a lot better, obviously. Right, of course. And, he's, and that's when he said, well, no, then you need a window because look at the people walking because by Because you here. wanted to have They're not going to go in the market, walk around. And take get up to space look. inside. Right. And let's keep the coffee sales out front, leave the inside for people eating. And because that area out front, when everybody got together for the coffee, that's where people, they, they, they got to know each other and they got to catch up with each other. Yajime. And talking to each other about what the local gossip is, la politica. Yeah, and meet after lunch and meet in the afternoon before going home and starting, like you say, the whole kind of conversation about Cuba that unfortunately it's persisted for, you know, 60 years, 60 years and we're still talking about it. You know, we always say that in the window of Versailles, uh, Castro's met his doom over a million times, you know, like, like the McDonald's burger or a million burgers. <laughs> a million, a million, Ca uh, Castro's been knocked in the head wishes. way over a million times in that window. So the windows have become this cultural icon, but your dad installs it and immediately sees, like he's just a, a salesman at that point, but he immediately sees the success that it has because it imports that Cuban coffee culture with this modern local American air conditioning being the part of what's next. They start popping up overnight. More supermarkets and, and, and small cafeterias because yes. there wasn't really a lot of restaurants uh, back then, if any at all, that were Cuban. So it was more of the market. So the first thing like Cubans opened that were in retail in Cuba and that kind of thing. And Cuba had tremendous stores. Remember, Cuba had the department stores that later became El Corte Inglés in Spain, the largest in the world. So, you know, they kind of say that department stores like El Encanto, La Galería Preciada, those first original department stores kind of came out of Cuba with a lot of things brought from, you know, France and Spain. So there were fantastic stores <clears throat> that were working in, in Cuba. So there was a lot of retail-minded businessmen. They came here and they started opening these different types of stores. Some supermarkets, others for, uh, you, you know... Um, quick sandwich uh, shops. Quick sandwiches right. and, and little cafeterias within this store and the other store. And that's kind of how it got started until eventually one was open in a restaurant itself, like, like ours are now, where they're part of, of the restaurant. Oh, the that restaurant. was probably five, ten years later. Right. So your dad does this thing where pretty early on, he buys what would be Badia, which was a, mo a really, now people know it as the spices, Badia spices, you see it in Sedanos and everywhere else, but he bought a, a location that was now it's El Pub, El Pub, uh, and this was a sandwich shop, and one of the first thing he think he does is he puts in a ventanita. What, for, what, for talk me. about that transition too, where he goes from this this salesman and seeing other people have success to then that's first really the first big move is deciding that he's going to go into a restaurant business, and then he and then he does it and he brings what he's learned. Yeah, yeah. I think you know as he as he's doing these jobs, 
He's saying, I'm, I'm almost doing kind of the complicated part of it, right? <laughs> right. And serving coffee and croquetique. And, and they're eating like my lunch, It's right? easier. <laughs> and I'm setting it up for all these guys. And then he decides to buy this place that was doing okay. And, uh, install, and then he installs a window uh, to the street and, and operates it for a few years. And sure. it became very popular, but uh, obviously still struggling you know, financially, it's the first one, you know, restaurants take a while to get going and he's able to sell it. And with the money that he sold by the other, then goes and buys kind of the front end corner of a little strip center and starts remodeling it and making it into whatever size is today. It opened originally as a small kind of nighttime for artists and, and poets and, and, uh, and, um, you know, newspaper journalists. There was a lot of those in Cuba. These dirty ink stink wretches. You know, just because <laughs> that's interesting that the, that Versailles started with that kind of ethos, kind of like a um, a late night buzzy, uh, yeah, excited it was crowd. Like a cafe de artistas, kind of. You know, because again, there was An artist a guy. lot of the people that came from Cuba were you know, there were all types of profession, but Cuba was extremely advanced, obviously, in radio and television. There were number one in, in, in pretty much in the world other than, than the U.S. Uh, they had more radio stations, more, more, did the first musical concerts on, on over the radio. They had more radio stations per capita than probably anywhere in the world and, and, and dailies and newspapers and magazines, television. Obviously, you saw what Desi Arnaz does as soon as he comes sure. here. He kind of blew it out of the water and so forth. They were, they were very, so a lot of these artists were kind of roaming around seeing what they did now because now there was no longer these venues and theaters and, and so on. And there was just a lot of them at night and they would go to different places. Then he kind of created this little, this little elegant cafe with a very small menu for them. It worked very well. And then we expanded throughout the years three times to, to, to what it is now, obviously with a full menu. And, and Versailles is outside of traditional Little Havana. It's not really in Little Havana. And the center of Little Havana was much further east and a little bit north, which was... Well, Little, Little Havana, per se, at that time, almost didn't exist. When Versailles opened, probably, you're right, okay. it probably had already kind of existed, which is a little bit farther um, east. Uh, they told him, why are you opening so far west out there in no man's land? <laughs> it's so funny that this 30th, is considered the, the, the really the suburbs. 35th was like saying... The Everglades. Wow. Today, oh, wow. you're opening out in the Everglades. He goes, you're nuts. That's too far west. No one's going to go out there because life ended in 12th Avenue and we were on 35th. Wow. He did it anyways. Obviously, Miami just, you know, the magic city, right? He just he expanded. Had and he expanded. had vision that, that more was coming. You know, I imagine so because also it might be that it was just a little cheaper out here than over there. <laughs> Who knows? But either way, it turned out to be. And then, and then we left it as Versailles since it had the funny name. That he put because the guy who did the little diner for him, the little cafe, right. who, who happened to be a designer, you know, from Cuba. There was a lot of talent out here making oh, nothing, yeah. right? Oh, there was funny. a guy that was pretty, and he did all these etched mirrors with acid and, and, and blaze and, and putting things behind. And he created the, this little mirror, kind of elegant uh, cafe. It was a little jewel box type and, of place. And my dad goes, this thing looks like, like it's the, the palace in Versailles. <laughs> Yeah, well, it's kind of inspired by that. Goes, well, you know what? I'm going to put Versailles. And wow. that's, how, that's why he put the name. Then later, I would say 71, so like eight years later, 
around there seven, eight years later that I was finishing college and started, uh, I was always working as a kid in the restaurants, but kind of, you know, started to get more involved. We buy the diner in front of her size. There was literally a diner. It was like one of those, uh, like those metal, metal yeah, diners, like the polished. kind of finished diner. Right? Yeah. And, and it's still there with the building next to it and, and it's part of the, the structure. And then we said, no, we have to put a name that's Cuban. Right. You can't put Versailles, it makes no sense. And this, uh, so we put La Carreta, and then that's kind of the one we expanded right. throughout the county. Not a lot of people know that that, that, that you guys owned both of the major From. apparently competing Cuban businesses. Yeah. <laughs> that was the genius. Well, I used to have people that used to say, oh, look what they opened right in front of you. Like, right now, but he's a good guy. <laughs> it was like if you had Pat and Gino's in Philly. But somebody exactly. owned Pat and Gino's. Yeah, there was a guy yeah. named Felipe that owned both of them. And, and the people that didn't know, the reality is the, the majority of them said, why would you open a restaurant in front of you and competing? In today's market, we all know that restaurants and more restaurants and more things that you hub yes. and put together draws a general larger crowd. It's better to be... The rising tide lifts all lifts right, all Instead of being out by yourself. That was Felipe Valls Jr. speaking with me recently after his father's passing. Felipe Valls Sr. died November 26 at age 89, leaving behind the Ventanita and a legacy that influenced South Florida's culture. If you missed any part of our conversation, all Sundial episodes are available on our daily podcast. Still to come, we continue our conversation with Felipe Jr. He tells another story that points to his father being a trailblazer. This time, it goes back to the origins of Churrasco. Welcome back to Sundial on WLRN. I'm Carlos Frias. Let's get back to my conversation with Felipe Valls Jr. We're looking at the origins of the iconic Inventanita invented by his father. The influence of Felipe Sr. goes beyond these walk-up coffee windows. From Cuban cuisine to the restaurant business to politics. Did he appreciate what he created in the Ventanita that it became this cultural identity to Miami? Well, I think I think he did to a certain extent, but you know when you're you know what they say when you're living in it, you kind of just don't realize it. Mm. Uh, and I think really when when you called me to do the story in the Ventanita, believe it or not, it's kind of when we came to the realization. You know, he did the first one. He's the one that opened the most in the city. The most famous ones are, are our restaurants, La Carreta and Versailles. That's mm. always have been the the number one ventanitas with the most product and the best product and, and our own coffee. And, you know, they're, they're the more iconic windows anyways. And, and we kind of realized because a little bit because of your uh, story, Carlos, that, that it is a great thing, that it is unique and that it was basically started and invented to a certain extent by him, even though we kind of get used to it, right? You're so used to ventanitas in Miami that you don't kind of think back. And what is, what is... How did this happen? How yeah, did how this did get happen? to be? And now, obviously, there's a hunt, there's over a thousand of them in, in Miami. Yeah. Well, you know, and you're, I think that's something that your dad doesn't get credit for, uh, is that if you asked me, and somebody did recently, where does he stand in, in the importance of Miami restaurant tours? I think your dad is argu- was arguably the most important Miami restaurant tour. Why do I say that? Because... He made mainstream a kind of cuisine that now you identify with Miami. He made Cuban cuisine 
uh, something that is that is almost inseparable from our DNA as a Miami culture. And and you guys went on to open how many over thirty restaurants together, right? Because you that's you have the interesting thing that you worked closely with your dad as soon as you could work, right? And and you opened. I've opened over thirty four restaurants in my you know forty some years that I've been working with them, but. Uh... Yeah, I, I agree. As far as far as the importance of a restaurant tour today, Miami is a restaurant capital worldwide. It, it is one of the most Michelin stars, yeah, James Beard, everything of every type, and it kind of just dwarfs anything that one could have done. And but, yet, people still come to Versailles. Oh yeah, we still have very popular places. That, yeah. that doesn't mean that Versailles obviously is not one of the number one. I think Versailles does patron wise probably more than any other. Uh, uh, restaurant in Miami, but originally when Miami was again had nothing, right. there was no restaurants of any stature here of any level. Uh, there wasn't really any big change here of like family type restaurants. There was it was the home of Burger King, right? I will tell you that's that's the one thing. <laughs> right. But there wasn't a lot of re- maybe an Italian restaurant up in North Miami, a little French one over here, sure. small place. Joe Stone Crab over in Joe's, way Joe's, over Miami. Joe's obviously, there was already yep. probably an institution to a certain extent. Yep. Um, that was it. So the bringing in of a Spanish restaurant like El Cid, that people would come from West Palm Beach, the bringing Cuban food. This was another, this was another restaurant that you had that's near where that, uh, it's on Lejeune, which is like the heart of Coral Gables. And it looked like a big Spanish castle, if I remember. And people would come all over. So, but I think that's interesting is the diversity of restaurants. Like we talk about La Palma, which is the restaurant where when it gets a little bit chilly, everybody gets hot chocolate and churros that's a vols property la carreta that everybody knows is like more the more accessible the more downscale place or the more uh, you know where you go in shorts and t-shirt type of place versailles where you dress up a little bit more casa juancho which is a a very kind of more elegant spanish restaurant you know really decorated inside it and those are all that's because of your dad's vision and i think cuban food uh was the one connection that kids like me uh, not me that I was directly involved in the Cuban restaurant, but kids like me that weren't. Uh, they got their first taste of, of something Cuban. There, there was, there was really, they're in another country. Yes, they're surrounded by Cuban and Cuban families, but all of them kind of, you know, struggling and, and scattering, trying to make a living. So then, and then the Cuban music, which was something very strong, was here, but it wasn't that strong. So the one common denominator that everyone would have was Cuban food, the food. But really, nobody would do it other than your grandmother at home. Right, and that's kind of the food that we brought in. Is well, it's a, it's the entryway. Food is so much the entryway to culture. Right. I've never been to Ethiopia, but I understand Ethiopian food. It's such a, a way for someone to easily begin to see another group and to feel a softness for them because there is an understanding that these that these people who have arrived are not here to overrun the place, but they're coming with culture. And Cuban food obviously is very easy to to like. It's not hmm. a complicated food. It's very. It's not spicy. A lot of people yeah. think it's spicy. There's yeah, no yeah, spicy. It's too. very tasty <laughs> it's and tasty, very right? spiced and, and condimented, but not necessarily hot. I have a good friend, Anthony Chang, who covers the Miami Heat as a sports writer. They took their engagement photos at the little window. Uh, we were talking earlier how like the Real Housewives came and shot an episode there. 
And the politicians, when they came, like everybody from, I remember reading that Bob Graham, who was a Democratic candidate for governor, candidate for governor here, was he worked as a busboy. And from there, all the way to, you know, Senator Rick Scott sent you a text when your father passed. So it became, it was weird because it, it was never, you guys weren't overtly political, but it was the hub of like when everybody was running for office, everybody felt like they had to go through Versailles to get that Cuban vote. Absolutely. And yeah, Governor uh, Graham, a great gentleman, he, he didn't actually work there as a bus, but he did, he did his publicity, his, his campaign right. was the day in the life of an average working Joe. So he took different positions, worked as a bus driver, as a mechanic, as a whatever, different positions to kind of feel what it was to be one of those. And in the case of food, he, he became a busboy. We dressed him in his little green jacket and put him out on the floor as a busboy. He got a lot of compliments with perfect English you speak and, <laughs> and you're so elegant. And imagine. Please tell me you have a photo of this somewhere. There has there to be a photo. It's, it's in the Herald. That, that photo is oh, a, a big, the next day, so you know, the big, big front page uh, news was, well, then not, I think, I think he was nothing at that point. He was just starting his political career. Uh, Graham is a busboy in Versailles, and he comes out, and you can see him serving a tray and this and that, and it got a lot of press. Oh, my gosh. And so I think it kind of told people, hey, Versailles, the Cuban community, it's the pulse of the Cuban communities there. The Cuban vote block is the biggest right now in Miami, and that kind of started politicians saying, hey, this is it, you know, just like, like Reagan and Bush and Clinton and, and everyone that's come. Uh, I think it's their paying respect to the Cuban community. And what can we do, you know, to help you? Your dad was very much an innovator in that way. I, I always remember this story that he told me, and I do remember growing up, there wasn't really a churrasco steak. Like churrasco, if you look it up, is now we think of it as this skirt steak. And we say, oh, churrasco. But really, it's a cut that Argentines know as entraña, which doesn't have a great sound to it. And he was like, if we rename this churrasco, more, more people will order. People that, that aren't familiar with that cut will order. And he, yeah. he was told me, he was like, I take credit for Miami using that term, churrasco. And I thought that was really clever. Yeah, yeah, because that meat was very cheap back then. It wasn't a cut that Cubans ate that much. So... The manager that was here in front in, in the diner, when it was a diner, who was a, a Spaniard from Cuba, uh -huh. he said, you know, these guys serve this little steak here. They call it Romanian steak or something like that. It's great meat. I don't really know. I've never seen it. We tried it, and it was spectacular, and it was very cheap. So, okay, let's put it on the menu. What do we call this? Nobody knew what skirt steak was, inside or outside. Sure. No one knew what entraña was. It doesn't sound no, appetizing in, Cu in Cuban. So we just put churraco carretero. Carretero being the restaurant itself. And churraco, which means basically charred or char grilled. It's a style of cooking. It's, it's, it's almost charred. like saying barbecue. It's churracao, yeah. Right, it's, 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 uh, it's the char. Char and churraco are pretty much the same. So it's kind of like char grilled. But then the steak became popular in 8th Street. Then we opened Bird Road and then Kendall and Hialeah and so on and so forth. And it kind of started becoming the number one dish on the menu. And then all of Miami got used to eating <laughs> churraco garretero. So everybody called it churraco. Till one day I found it in Publix. I see churraco, Latin beef, and then very small tiny letters on the bottom, skirt steak. And I go, look, 
it's hit the mainstream now, <laughs> the skirt steak. And then even chains, American chains would put your, and now today in the U.S., the majority of Latinos that are in the U.S. call that cut churraco because of the churraco carretero. Even though it's not a churraco, churraco just means char grilled. Right. But everybody calls the skirt steak churraco. Now, I will warn listeners, churraco is not a technical word, so you can put churraco on any meat. And it can be and, churraco. And it, and it cannot be skirt. Uh-huh, right. And skirt is the, the is authentic the churraco carretero. Right, right. That was Felipe Valls Jr., his father's business partner for decades, and he now runs the family business. Again, Felipe Valls Sr. died at the end of November at age 89. If you missed any part of our conversation, all Sundial episodes are available on our daily podcast. You can now stay in touch with us via text by joining our Sundial Text Club. Send us your thoughts, comments, or questions by texting the word JOIN to 786-677-0767. Again, text JOIN to 786-677-0767. Coming up. Beyond the Businessman, and how the Falls family will continue Felipe's legacy. Welcome back to Sundial on WLRN. I'm Carlos Frias. We've been talking about Ventanitas, Miami's famous coffee windows, and its inventor, Felipe Valls Sr., who died at the end of last month. But there's more behind the man. His loved ones remember the stories of how he helped recent immigrants who had little to nothing, like he once did. Whether it was offering someone a job or a place to stay, he affected these people's lives. His son, Felipe Jr., told us more. I know that you've been preparing also to give his eulogy, which is something that I had to write for my own father not too long ago. Has it given you a chance to think about what he's meant to Miami culture, to Miami to Miami's Cuban community, to Miami at large, does, has it given you a chance to kind of reflect a little bit on, on what he's meant from the Ventanitas to the Churrasco? Well, you know, uh, Felipe Sr. was a guy who was just a huge heart with two legs. He was a very, very friendly. Uh, you know, he could uh, entertain a king to, to a pauper. He treated everybody the same. It was just amazing what a natural kind of person he was. He never... He's just a, he helped so many people, would give them apartments and lend them money. And if it was from Cuba coming in, we even more and we get him a job. He just kind of lived to, to, to help people within, you know, within the business. And he was always there up front doing that. I was more kind of in the background, you know, working the kitchens and so forth. And, he would, and so it started becoming kind of that kind of personality uh, that he started kind of building his reputation on. But... I think, you know, the value of Cuban food and how it became the, the common thread in, in youth. Um, I mean, I went to a school that was nowhere near La Carreta. Today, there's one pretty close to it on Bird Road. And I'm thinking, you know, we were a small amount of Cubans within a large Anglo, uh, um, you know, group of students. And I, and I used to eat at Burger King and in hot dogs and this and that. And, and Eso no comida, <laughs> yeah. as Cubans would say. That's but, not real But when food. I would get to lunch with my Cuban sandwich, bro, I could barter anything on the lunch table. Because <laughs> yeah, they were eating two white breads with bologna and cheese. And I had a pound of uh, meat and, and, and uh, Emmental Swiss cheese. And, and I would cut it up and trade for muffins and bananas. Whatever I wanted, I could trade off with, with my sandwich. 
Go but I think it. I think the value of that food and bringing the Cuban community kind of together is really the greatest thing. The the other is you know from the political standpoint, and he was always upfront with everything that had to do with Cuba and and meeting and just like the, the political part of it. For instance, when Clinton won uh, the presidency, he President Clinton did a a dinner for a certain small group of Cubans that were on his side as a Democrat and that helped him, even though back then, just like now, the majority of the Cubans were kind of leaning towards Republican. Right. Uh, and That's really interesting. That, and, and, and he always, he, 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 it became a hub for that rather than one side or the other. Yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah. We, we always, I mean, for 40 years, we've been doing interviews and programs, as you know, and all that. And one thing we always maintained, and I was always very strong about that is, first, no political publicity on our windows or, or area or parking, mm. zero. And I've had friends of mine run for important positions and I've told them if I do it with you, I gotta do it with everybody. And we're totally neutral for that because that's what, that's what brings in conversations and unity and comments and wanting to visit. Because if not, then you're, you're only one-sided. And if you're one-sided, you're just kind of being, waving the same flag that everybody's waving. They don't, we don't need that. We need common common ground so we've always kept it like that and that's why we've had different uh you know presidents of different sides come in and and so anyway at the end we brokered macanoso and the cuban foundation to come in through the kitchen <laughs> and force clinton to meet with them and talk about what was going on in cuba at that time wow. and the adjustment acts and all that what so so versailles that. being just a restaurant had this kind of key to to the to the Cuban vote, to the Cuban thought, to the to the Cuban lobbying team, because Cubans always had strong lobbying in Washington and strong presence. Today, look at the Senate. There's three Cuban senators in the most exclusive club in the world, which is a hundred members, and there's three of them: one Democrat and two Republicans. So they've always been very much, and that in Versailles just happened to be there, and 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 it was a. You know, it was always nourishing. We, we, we nourish that situation and help it and, and do as many. I've done six million interviews about the Ventanita and this and that. Like, you know, not so much now on who invented it, but why are they here? And with this president, they came. It's just been endless amount of uh, time. And it just became now kind of the city hall of the Cuban people here in Miami. That That's really the strongest of all the elements. It's a tremendous brand. And then Felipe himself, who was always... A gentleman to everyone, small and big. I'll always remember the morning, because it was morning, it was like 1 a.m. when I found out that Fidel Castro had died. And I remember the first place that I went to was Versailles. I came out here, I was the first reporter, I was standing on top of a, uh, a newspaper bin with my camera and watching the crowd gather. What was that day like for your dad? Where was your dad on that day? Did he, did he come to Versailles the day that Castro had died? And what do you remember about I'm that? I'm trying to remember if it was when he first thought, we, everyone thought he had died, which was a bigger, almost bigger celebration than when he actually died. <laughs> and then when he actually died. Uh, no, what he, as far as I remember, I mean, obviously I came right away and started kind of organizing the... Start selling coffee. No, more, more than, we're always ready for sales, right? We're, yes. <laughs> we're used to 1,000, 2,000 people a day. But... You know the onslaught of people and cars, and yes. they I take over. Here. They take over the whole block. You know. I was here when Lichirino showed up, and he let everybody in a rendition of "Ya viene llegando," yeah, yeah. the the song. You know, our, our time is coming. 
eventually came and we were, I remember sitting in the back dining room there and we were just there on the table kind of enjoying the moment, enjoying the scene outside of 10,000 people celebrating because we've really never had protests here in Versailles though with the Liang incident, right. the media nationally kind of made it seem like there was this big uh, protest, like these protests you've seen now in the U.S. and burnings and this and that. No, they were protesting their position but, but it was a friendly that was the most kind of a hot one. Everything else was pretty much a party and a celebration. Yeah, it's, it's been, that's the thing is it's, whenever there was an issue of Cuba, that's where you saw some, some form reflected here, whether it was Elena Gonzalez, whether it was Castro, uh, finally on the 10,000th time uh, actually uh, being deceased, uh, there was always a ref something reflected here at Versailles. And was, I, I know that you guys have had a lot of restaurants over the years. Did your dad, did your dad have a favorite? Did he have a favorite restaurant? No, I don't. I mean, I think Versailles in our hearts is our favorite. Sure. Right? Because of what it represents beyond just the plain restaurant or the, the, the restaurant itself. Um, I mean, he, he enjoyed Casa Juancho a lot when, you know, as we had it, he enjoyed El Cid. You know, the finer dinings, obviously, is where he'd take most of the people that I was always there welcoming them. And, uh, and then La Carreta as a chain itself, uh, you know, he's proud of, you know, what I've done in the airport, obviously, with 20-something locations. So he's kind of proud of everything, liked everything. Favorite is tough to tell. But I, I will tell you, he, he is a foodie, as you are, and, and goes to more restaurants even than I. Is that right? And it's constantly telling me, go check this and go look at this. And why don't you do it like this and this and that. And then I got to go out there and, and figure it out in the kitchen. So he loves, in general going out but i don't think he loved anything more than a good home you know home cooked in our restaurants home style cooking of cuban food it's, it's a struggle but we're lucky that we've been able to continue doing it you know we've bought all our locations so we we, we have that advantage i'm not having yeah, to if you own real estate you're yeah, no one can force you out with a higher rank okay, today to operate a restaurant like la garreta in today's rental market uh it's almost impossible. I mean, that's why you can keep prices low because you any rental anywhere is fifty, sixty thousand dollars a month. Sure. And so, like, that's that's part of a secret, an open secret, right, in the restaurant world. That if you can own your real estate, then you can keep the prices down, and people will come and, back. And you can keep your place for for many, many years and decades because you don't have the that landlord or the price or the the because Miami has gotten you know extremely expensive as far as real estate and and rental it really is incredible you know so the, I, I, but arguably the most famous Cuban restaurant maybe in the world is Versailles how did your dad did he ever discuss that did you ever discuss the fact that you guys had built something that endured in that way well I mean after it happened and we kind of realized it, yes, it, it wasn't planned to be that. I think it just happened, like we said, organically and through the, the coverage and the media. Always with one thing in mind, there has to be consistency. You have to be improving and it has to be real. And our food is definitely real, as you know. Everything is from scratch. Everything is real. And, and I think it's, it's even a bigger point, which is the food in Cuba itself is not this food. This is the food of 
of the diaspora. It's like a food that left that country and Absolutely. landed here and now exists here because of people like your dad. That's that's got to be something that he must have been proud of. The fact that you no, preserved the he food preserved it is the word. He preserved that basic culinary Cuban food. Now, today, if Cuba would have been free, obviously there'd be higher levels of the food, uh, much more modern, minimalistic, uh, Art Nouveau, every kind of level, more Spanish, more this, more that. And some of that's happened in Miami, but, but not that much. It's kind of exploded in other realms of cuisine. And Cuban food has stayed very much as that original kind of basic food. And our concepts have been that family type concept. So the price has kind of stayed there. And, and there's been restaurateurs from other cities that have come Cuban and opened Cuban restaurants, very expensive for the same thing. And it's not that a, a dish isn't worth $50 or $40. It's just that like, Arredas and Versailles are selling them at, at 16. So it just kind of dwarfs that, that, that kind of thing. And, and that's kind of where we want to stay. We want to stay at that popular level, very good food at great prices for the whole family and, and all the other expensive and finer things, um, you know, for others, because that's... Will you talk to us about a little bit when, you're, when your dad passed? I know you got hundreds of texts. I think you said that uh, you stopped answering and you even missed a call from Senator Rick Scott, Florida Senator Rick Scott. What, what kind of, was there someone that surprised you that you got a message from uh, an old competitor or somebody, something like I that? I got various competitors and um, yeah, we've got a lot, of, a lot of different restaurateurs have called me, uh, politicians people from Spain, childhood friends of mine, uh, high school friends of mine, people I haven't talked to in 40 years, others that I see all the time, and, and a numerous amount of uh, politicians and senators and, and, and governors and ex-governors. Um, you know, again, for all of them and, and most of the community in you know, Versailles, more than myself and my father, the, the Versailles kind of phenomenon that goes around it and, and what it means and the kind of the symbol it is, is really, you know, the greatest legacy as far as the business. The legacy in, in the family is more Felipe and his way of being, right? And, and how he was such a simple guy and spoke to everyone at whatever level it was always the same. Whether you were a king or pauper, didn't matter. He'd bring you in. It was, it was just spectacular, all hurt. And that, you know, goes a long way when you're a, a businessman and people like you and respect you because of that. Because he was always there and always, always with the Cuban flag. He loved America. To him, it was the greatest country in the world and appreciates absolutely everything that Americans and this country has, was given to him. But he always had the heart of Cuba and was always involved with the politics and donating to all the foundations and always at the front and center of anyone and everyone that came on how to free Cuba. Unfortunately, he died and Cuba's still a prisoner, but you know, someday maybe I'll go representing him over there and, and see Cuba for him. You know, when, when my dad died, uh, especially during the, the funerals and the wakes, you know, uh, Los Velorio, you hear stories about your father that you didn't know yeah, yeah. and that are surprised you and they bring you joy. 
Yeah, absolutely. In the, in the last people, few People days. I don't even know. Right. That have come up to you. You don't know what your dad did for me. He did but, but oh, dozens of them, man, that I don't even... I know a lot of them, but... Can you can you think of one one that, cause like, that surprised you that you've heard recently that you hadn't heard before? Yeah, I mean, most of them are people that came and he would give a hand to, right? Guys have told me, he gave me $10,000 and he barely knew me in Cuba, but I'm a friend of, you know... Jose is over here and this and that. And he did this for me. He, he let me stay in an, an apartment he had for six months until I got uh, my things going. He bought a house for me and then gave me the notes so I was, so I was able to, to finance it, right? And, and it would do things like that for anybody that was a friend or came through a friend or, or you know, an employee. Um, you know, we started loans for employees where we had everybody, every restaurant had 10, 12 loans that we'd give to employees. And, you know, he was, he was just always doing something, just a, just a very sweet guy within his, uh, you know, he was tough in business, tough as nails and, and did what he needed to do. But on the other hand, money, it wasn't about money to him. It was more about creating something and, and being successful. And, and he just enjoyed business. Like if he was, like if it was his greatest hobby and his greatest sport, and you're a fanatical fisherman, he was a fanatical business guy. He just loved doing business. And that's exactly what you expect from the guy that invented the Ventanitas of Miami. You and your dad have a similar story. Yeah, my dad. My dad, he, he had been living with me. And as, although I lost him in a tragic way, an unexpected way, those months that we lived together, that he lived with me, were the closest that we'd ever been. Yeah. Like we really got to, and you know, he, he, he lived in Broward. So I got to show him Miami, the Miami that he always wanted. So right. I took him, I took him to La Ventanita here at Versailles, a coffee a night. I took him to Café La Trova and listened to old Cuban music. Right. Uh, I took him to El Esquisito. We played at Domino Park. They let me right. sneak in, even though I was under the age limit or above the age limit. Uh, <laughs> above the age limit? Well, I was under. The age limit was above where I was allowed to be. Uh, so I really got to have that experience, and, and uh, I, can, I can only imagine what a joy it was for you to, to get to know your dad no, I guess in, the, in that the way. The thing with my dad is I'm, I'm the only son, right? Uh, the only guy in the family. He was always also the only male in, in his uh, siblings. So, you know, he was my father. He was like my brother. He was like my son. And he was my partner. For 50 years, hand in hand, working, he would point. I would work. He would work. I would point like that back and forth, back and forth, doing everything and everything, absolutely everything together. So, you know, it's a big loss because you get so used to being to someone, even if he's not your father or you love him that much, just any you and me were working for 50 years you know i lose you and and it's heartbreaking so for me it's tough because he's always been my partner my brother my my, my dad so it's tough but you know it is what it is he lived a great life 90 years of, of just joy so you know you you can't complain again that was felipe valls jr talking about his father felipe valls senior the founder of versailles and the inventor of the ventanita after our chat, Philippe and I walked over to Versailles for a cortadito. The sun was setting, the day winding down, but the little window was as bright and busy as ever. The waitress seemed to know everyone. She calls you caballero or mi amor. Lo que yo de verdad quiero, what I really want is un cortadito. Un cortadito? Con leche evaporada. 
I'll have a straight, regular Cuban just like me. This is our meeting place, where locals and tourists crowd the counter for croquetas, chisme, and community. Acuérdate que te queremos, she says. Remember that we love you. En La Ventanita, it's good vibes only. And that's Sundown for Monday, December 12th. Leslie Ovalle Atkinson's is our lead producer. Elisa Baena is our producer and social media editor. Our engagement editor is Katie Leprey Cohen. Katie Munoz is our interim managing editor. Our senior news editor is Jessica Bakeman. Peter Mertz is WLRN's vice president of radio and sundials engineer. Our theme music is by the Miami Afro-Cuban funk band Palo at gopalo.com. You can download a podcast of this program. Search WLRN Sundial on your podcast app. Coming up tomorrow on the program, why is America like this? That's one of the many questions explored by syndicated columnist Leonard Pitts Jr. He's retiring from the Miami Herald after three decades. He didn't tiptoe around difficult topics from race to poverty to gun violence. And he joins us to talk about life, plus his early attempt to write about superheroes for Marvel. I'm Carlos Frias. Thanks so much for listening. Talk to you tomorrow. Public Media.